As you're turning those Bibles to Genesis in chapter 22, where we will be arriving this morning. As you can see, we got some trees removed up the hill this week, so that's pretty exciting. Um, and uh, early this week, we'll actually see a high lift up there, and they're going to start plucking those stumps out there like a high lift does very gently, pulling those things out of the ground. So I might be over here like a little boy going, I want to see this, and can I drive it? Um, but then at the same time, uh, we're going to be start hauling in some rock and putting in culvert pipes, and we'll add to the parking. So hopefully the parking situation will be alleviated. And then um, just a few practical notes. We actually did order some more of the brown chairs to replace the blue chairs. And the blue chairs we'll have actually uh, put in the basement. And in the basement, we'll have about 40 chairs. And so we've been having this growing number of youth in our church. And we've had a growing number of adults that want to invest in our youth and teach them about Jesus. And so all that to say that on January 17th, we're going to have our first youth night of 2021. It will be on Sunday nights. And every month, we're going to have um, Sunday nights, except for one Sunday night, we're going to Instead of doing that, we'll do a Saturday night, we'll have a game night. And so if you have youth interested or youth, if you have friends that would come to that, I invite them. It's going to be a fun time. Uh, the whole point of our youth group is not just to have exciting, awesome, fun stuff, although they're going to do that. But the point of the youth group is for our youth, before they leave our homes, before they go off to college or their jobs, to be fully presented with the person of Jesus. And as they have Jesus presented to them, they'll have some decisions to make. Is this the person I'm going to follow or I'm going to follow after my own heart? And the reality is, is I went off to college fully ready to follow my own heart. And then I found out at college that my own heart was deceitfully wicked above all things and caused myself a lot more problems than I ever needed to. But by God's grace, he took care of me anyway. And so all that to say, be praying for our youth and our youth leaders, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what God does in there. So other than that, if you want to be informed about our youth gatherings, there's we use the Remind app, and if you uh, text 81010 to AV Chap, or vice versa, or talk to Micah, or Drew, or Tammy, or the Andersons, or the Sylvies, talk to any family that's already got youth, and if you're interested... Uh, ask them what we do and how we do it, when it's going to be happening, and they'll keep you informed. So I think that's all for practical notes. can't think of anything else. So in Genesis chapter 22 this morning, we're going to be looking at a very uh, famous story and one of my favorite stories from the book of Genesis. But uh, what I want you to remember is that these aren't stories. <laughs> this is actually history. These are things that actually took place. And so imagine yourself in uh, Abraham's shoes. And as you listen to what God asks of Abraham, I want you to imagine God asking this of you. And then maybe we can respond personally to what God would speak to us. So in Genesis chapter 22 this morning, it says, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, now, why did he say to him, Abraham? Because he called him by his name. Abraham knew him personally. So if I can get the second slide. 
It says, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And then Abraham answered and said, here I am. So in the three sections in today's first part of chapter 22, we're going to see that God is going to test Abraham in verse 1 and 2. Ironically, Abraham doesn't know that this is a test. He doesn't have the big screen that comes across at 2 a.m. that says, this is a test, this is only a test. All he knows is what God gets ready to say to him. He doesn't have the preamble. Verse 3 through 10, Abraham finds out, and God also sees, that Abraham's faith isn't just words, but his faith has feet to it. It has action. And then verse 11 through 19, we're going to see that God rewards Abraham for his faith. So God gives us faith. He prepares our faith. He builds our faith. And then he rewards us for exercising the faith that he gave us in the first place. I love that. What do we do? We show up and we fumble around and act like we know what we're talking about. And then God gets the glory. And so here we have in verse 1 and 2, where God approaches Abraham and gets ready to test him. And Abraham responds to the voice of God. He's attentive. He says, here I am. And then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So what we know, Abraham did not know beforehand that this was a test. All he knows is verse 2. Take your son, your only son. Interesting thought because Abraham had others, another son, didn't he? Uh, he had a son with Hagar by the name of Ishmael. So, but what I want to recognize about that is that even though he had another son, God didn't recognize that son as the son of promise. We talked about that last week. He had to cast that son out of his home, which had to be painful for him. But all the things that God allows in our lives or tells us to do that are painful, by the way, prepare us for the next step of faith that he's going to ask us to take. And so <clears throat> he's asked to send out his son and take him to a land of Moriah. But I want to point out that verse 2 also sounds very much like a passage that we might be familiar with. In John chapter 3, verse 16. I'm going to turn there because it's a very well-known verse, and I'm very likely to misquote it and do the Mike Mingy version of the verse. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him, should not perish, but instead have everlasting life. And so God gives so that we can receive. And God's saying, Abraham, I've given you a son. Are you willing to give this son up? God's interested in our hearts, and he's going to test Abraham's heart. And so he says, take your only son. Interestingly enough, God recognizes this as his only son, which I love because if you remember, Ishmael was actually a product of Abraham's lack of faith and also Abraham's sin. It was an adulterous relationship, even though it was culturally acceptable. He produced a child of the flesh 
instead of a child that was produced by faith. And so God doesn't, what I love about this is that God, in his infinite wisdom and grace, chooses to not remember our past sins. He doesn't hold them against us. Now, can God forget? No. But he chooses to remember our past sins no more. And I love that because if I was to stack up and make a record of my past sins and read them to you who are unholy people just like me, you would cringe and be like, this is awkward. And God, who is holy, to hear that list, think about the cringe that you would have, God ever so much more. He can't even look upon sin because he's righteous and pure and holy. He punishes sin. He actually, his wrath is poured out upon sin. He must judge it. And yet, I love this, but because of his faith in God, God chooses to remember his sins no more. And because of what Jesus has done for you and I, he doesn't just cover our sins, but his blood washes them away when we put our full trust in his sacrifice on our behalf. That's the gospel. If you're weighed down with past sins and you're walking in shame and you feel like you can't just be you, perhaps you need to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin and then it makes it all right. That's where righteousness comes from. We're no longer clothed in our past dirtiness, our filthiness. But righteous mean, righteousness actually means to be properly clothed, and it's not talking about what kind of clothes you wear or what kind of fashion you wear or what brand. It's talking about being clothed in Christ's righteousness, no longer clothed in your filthy rags as God would see it. And so God does not remember our past sins, sins but he also does not regard or acknowledge the works of the flesh. Paul talked about how we can build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, and he talked about how some will build with gold and silver and precious stones, and yet for those who build upon the solid foundation of Christ, some will use hay, wood, and stubble. But he also talks about how our works will be tested to prove whether or not they were built with the proper materials. Faith is a work that produces works that are like the gold and silver and precious stones that can be that can take the heat. And the way that you would test metal to see if it was properly refined and pure is you turn up the heat in a furnace and you put those metals in there. And as the, the temperature comes up, the impurities come out of it. What, what happens in a furnace if you put wood, hay, and stubble? They gone. <laughs> They're worthless in the eyes of the Lord. So our work should be able to be tested. And God looks at, at Abraham and he says, take your only son. So as he tells him to take his only son, he says, I want you to take him to the land of Moriah, the mountains of Moriah. And what we know about the, the landscape of Moriah is, that, remember, they were in Beersheba. They were down in the south, close to the, where the Philistines were inhabiting. He was around Abimelech. And as he's in Beersheba, remember last week we ended, he planted a tamarisk tree. And then he departs from there, and he goes to the north where the Lord tells him, with Isaac, and he goes to Moriah. Now, in the mountain range of Moriah is a mountain upon which 
they built the temple in Jerusalem. This is going to be the place where they would go and, and plant Jerusalem. And outside the city gates in Jerusalem, up on a mountaintop on Calvary, Jesus Christ is going to be sacrificed there. And so I'm giving away too much of the ending. Spoiler alert. Imagine that. But all that to be said, verse 3 goes on to say this. After God, by the way, asks Abraham to take his only son, he's already sent out his other son. He says, take this son, the son that I promised to give you many descendants from, take this son and I want you to take him to a mountain. And he's not vague here. He says, I want you to burn him as a sacrifice. And what I, we don't see in the text is Abraham going, what? Why? And you, don't also, you also don't see him going, hey, Sarah, what do you think about this? We actually don't hear about Sarah at all in this passage, which is interesting. So as we go on in verse 3, it says, so Abraham, his response, we're going to read from verse 3 to 10. Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. You notice all those ands in there? My son is four, and every story is, hey, dad, guess what? This and this and this, and then I did this, and then Lucy said this, and then mommy did this. It's a list of actions. Every st and to me, if I were to go to a, a language class or a, a grammar class and take that sentence apart, it's atrocious. I did this, and I did this, and I did this. And I don't know, maybe it's proper. I don't know, I'm not an English major. But what I do know is that it's all things that he did, and there's no dialogue. There's just action. If you read the book of Mark, you'll actually see that Jesus, in the book of Mark, it says, then, then he went and did this. And then he went in and did this. He was a man of action. And here we see Abraham responding to the call of God to do yet another thing. And it seems like a pretty big ask, right? Big ask. He's asking him to do something major. But what I want to go back to is in verse 1 of chapter 22. It says, after these things, God came to Abraham and said, Abraham. This wasn't the first time God asked Abraham to do something. If you'll remember with me, the very beginning, when God first spoke to Abraham, he says, Abraham, I want you to leave the land of your fathers. I want you to move your family from where you're comfortable and go to a place that I'll show you. Doesn't give him a brochure, doesn't tell him how long the journey is. He says, pick up your whole life and move. And then later in his life, he's living in this land. And all these kings are ganging up on each other. And he finds out that his nephew Lot has been taken captive as a part of this skirmish in the land where God has taken him. Abraham takes 318 of his trained men. And he goes and he fights these kings. He prevails, brings Lot back from captivity. And the Lord comes to him and says, don't worry about these kings. I am your shield. I'm your great reward. And then he goes to the land of Abimelech. And he lies and says, this is my sister, not my wife, so that he doesn't get killed. And then, the Lord, and then the Lord goes to Abimelech 
and straightens things out. And Abimelech says, hey, why did you lie to me? And yet at the end of it, even though this Abimelech despises Abraham, at the end of the story, Abimelech actually watches the life of Abraham as he dwells among him. And he goes, I can see that God is with you and his hand is upon everything that you do. Therefore, deal with me as I've dealt with you. And they make an oath. And all of a sudden, Abraham has water rights in this deserted land. And so all that to say, God has all the steps of the way been preparing. And then God says, I want you to take your son Ishmael and his mom and send them away. Your only son, even though he had another son, Isaac, says, I want you to cast out the, the son of the bondwoman, cast off the deeds of the flesh. He had to take a step. He had to send this son out of his home into the desert, and he sent him with water and bread. He's learning to trust that when God says to do something, he's going to take care of the details. We don't need to help God. And so as he's learned all these steps along the way, now God's going to ask him something bigger. I want you to take your son upon whom you've placed all of your trust for your descendants. I want you to take him to a mountain that I'll show you, Moriah. And I want you to burn him as an offering to me. I want you to tell me, do you love your son Isaac more than you love me? That's the real thing, right? When God asks you to give something up, it's never that the thing is necessarily a bad thing. He's just saying, what do you love more, me or this? And for you, it might not be your children. For you, it might be an addiction. For you, but, but even in this case, he's not asking him to give up something that's sinful. He's asking him to give up something that God gave him. And that's hard because it's confusing. Like, wait, you, you gave me this son. Now you're going to take him away? Why are you asking me to sacrifice? Are we supposed to sacrifice our children? There's none of that. But remember, all of this is Abraham being tested by God. And so this section is all Abraham obeying God. It's all Isaac trusting and submitting to his father. Imagine that, a son who came only to do the will of his father. Sound like Jesus? I think so. And so in verse 4, it says, Then on the third day, after Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off, and Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. You can be the, uh, the, the valet parking. You can stay with my car. And the lad and I will go on yonder. So he was a little bit more Iron County than I realized. And we're going to go yonder. We're going to worship. And we'll come back to you. Notice what he says there. We will go worship and we will return. That's quite the confidence. So it's almost like Abraham believes that his son's going to make it through this offering. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and he laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife. They didn't have big lighters, so he's got to carry a torch. And the knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac... This wasn't the first time that Isaac had been taken to church by his dad. Church didn't look like it does now. I'm thankful 
that ours looks different because I don't want to bring in a lamb and start slaughtering them up here. Well, that we'd all be creeped out. And, um, but Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and having been to these worship services before where they sacrifice. Now, you may not realize this, but you all made a sacrifice this morning. Not just to come here, but we get to make a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Praise the Lord that it's not a blood sacrifice, but we're praising the Lord for the blood sacrifice that he made for us in Jesus. The sacrifice is the fruit of our lips. We're confessing back to God who he is and what he's done, and we're giving thanks. And so as we're doing that, Isaac's recognizing that the sacrifice they would make would be an animal. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father, almost to go, wait, we're forgetting something. By the way, why didn't he tell him when they first left? You know, like, why do, why do people always decide that they forgot something two blocks or 10 minutes away from where they just left? Like, oh, I forgot the stuff. But here we are, he says, father. And he said, here I am, my son. And then he said, look, you brought the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? That's how we always worship. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went up together. What's interesting in verse 8 is if you read the literal translation, here's what it says. My son, God will provide himself the lamb. The four is really to make it make sense grammatically. But what he's saying is God will provide himself. And you'll notice that in some of your translations, himself is capitalized, meaning that God himself will be the sacrifice. I love this because, again, this is Jesus in the narrative showing up in the Old Testament, foretelling prophetically, Abraham speaking as a prophet, saying God himself will be the lamb. And if you want to remember easily what the Old Testament is, all of the Old Testament is saying, where is the lamb? Where is the sacrifice? And the New Testament is saying, here comes the lamb. Here he is. Here he's sacrificed, and then he's coming back, the Lamb of God. And, and if you look at the, the book of Revelation, when John finally sees Jesus, it says that he sees a man, he sees a lamb as though it had already been slain. And that lamb will bear the scars of his sacrifice for all of eternity. When you see Jesus, when we see him face to face, he, he won't look like he did. He will be marred. He'll be in his glorified body. But I believe we'll see him with the scars of what he did for us, the permanent tattoos that proved his love. And so here we have Abraham. He says God will provide himself a sacrifice. And that was the end of the discussion. Isaac trusted his dad. He was quiet they were simple, and there was trust. And then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and he laid him on the altar. What's interesting about this is that Isaac is not a young boy. 
You guys have seen or read the Bible story books, or you've seen the cartoons, and I've seen them too, and it's, it still teaches the same thing, but one thing it misses is that Isaac wasn't a young boy. Many believe that he was actually anywhere from 18 to 33, and many Bible teachers that I listen to actually teach that he was exactly 33, which is interesting because who else was 33 when he was sacrificed? Jesus. And so look at this. Abraham is identifying with the Lord in suffering. He can relate to his God in an intimate way. And not only that, but as he's crying out to the Lord, no doubt in his heart, it had to be painful. They're walking for three days. And Abraham knows the whole way. My son's as good as dead. I've been asked to kill him. And so in the midst of this, Isaac's not a young boy, which makes me think that Isaac is strong enough to carry his own wood, by the way, just like Jesus carried his own cross. And as they're going up the mountain, if you got enough strength to carry that amount of wood, you got enough strength to tell your dad, oh, I ain't doing it. And if you're a young man in here, you probably got to a certain age at one point, you said, you know what, dad, I'm going to test your strength because I don't want to listen to you anymore. Now, some of you are more godly than me, but I did that. My old man can run, though. <laughs> he scared me, <laughs> you know. Uh, but, you know, we all go through that rite of passage at some point. But here, we don't have that with Isaac. He's submitting to the will of his father. Abraham expresses, we will go and we will return. And what's interesting is the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 talks about this. In chapter 11, verse 17, speaking of Abraham in the hall of faith, he says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. But Abraham concluded that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. So Abraham believed in the resurrection before he had ever seen resurrection. You know, and what's interesting is Jesus talking to his disciples after the resurrection, and there you have uh, doubting Thomas, we call him. And Thomas comes up and he says, never mind, I believe, I've seen. And, and God, uh, Jesus says, blessed are those who, who believe even though they haven't seen. By the way, Abraham's in that group. And so as we're looking at that, it says there that concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Because to Abraham, his son was dead for three days. And on the way back, he received him back alive as if he had already died. Imagine that, a three-day death and then a resurrection, figuratively speaking. And so all of this is pointing to Jesus, and yet Abraham doesn't know that. Abraham is just walking by faith in the moment that he was born in and he's living in. He was trusting God's promise to provide descendants, according to Genesis 21. So I already said Isaac carried the wood that would burn him, just like later Jesus will carry the cross that will kill him. He's literally carrying his own deathbed. And yet God will provide himself 
a lamb. So verse 11. I don't think I read verse 9. So then they came to the place of which God had told him. Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, laid him on the altar. Isaac, his son, opened not his mouth, as Isaiah 53 says about Jesus. And he laid him on the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. And I'm going to stop there because there's tension, right? Any good writer that puts together a movie script or, or, a, or a, a story that, to be continued, we could stop there, and there's so much to glean from this story, but there's all these words leading up to. And yet in verse 10, as he stretched out, getting ready to plunge the knife to slit his son's throat, the tension is released as the angel of the Lord which is interesting because the angel of the Lord is capitalized there. Not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord, a Christophany. Jesus shows up in the Old Testament. And I believe that this is him speaking. And he says, Abraham, Abraham. Okay, that's, that's enough. Now I've seen that you've passed the test. And so Abraham, notice this also. Have you ever been told something by somebody to go do, and then you get so into it that if somebody goes, wait, never mind, do that, you're so far into it that you don't want, you're a hard-to-turn ship, and yet Abraham's been told to kill his son. He's in the midst of getting ready to do it, and yet Abraham is still sensitive to the voice of the Lord. He's an agile ship at a moment's notice, he's ready to turn and do something else. And Abraham, and perhaps it's because he's hoping not to have to do it. There's that piece too. But Abraham is told, he, he's called to, and, and the angel of the Lord says, and, and then Abraham says, here I am. In verse 12, it's circled in a big red pen in my Bible. It says, do not lay your hand on the lad. Do not do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. Not, not that you're afraid of him, but that you trust me. It's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom, right? So now I know that you fear the Lord, since you've not withheld your son, even your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes, and he looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket, by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham, a steerable ship, he's still willing to be led by the Lord. And then we find through this testing that Abraham's faith is proven to be real faith. It's not just words, but there's works attached to it. And how do we know that? Well, in James chapter 1 and verse 14, James there, being a seasoned veteran Christian, he says this in verse 14. Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Sorry, this is not the right verses. Imagine that. I've never done that before. 
It was going to be awesome. Chapter 2. Did I say chapter? Yeah. Thank you, Dave. Chapter 2, in verse 14, says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works attached to it? Can faith save a person? If a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed by the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is actually dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. And that's kind of a, a funny statement because you can't show someone you have faith without works. But he says, I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there's one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. But do you want to know, O oh, foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. By the way, that was said about Abraham way before he offered Isaac. It was said of Abraham that he believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness before he did anything. But when Abraham believed God and then did the works that God asked him to do, and then it was proven to be real, true, no kidding, rubber meets the road, faith. And so all that to be said, you see then, a man is justified by works and not by faith only. What's interesting is Ephesians 2 says that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works. So wait a minute, this is confusing. So I will say it this way. Works do not save you. They prove that you are saved. A changed life does not save anybody. Moral people can live moral lives. But works that follow faith prove who we really trust in and what we're really believing in. And so, back to Abraham. God says of him, Now I know that you fear God since you have not held back your only son for me, your only son that you love. You've, you've loved me more than you've loved your son. And therefore, verse 13 goes on to say, therefore, I will provide the sacrifice for you. And notice, Abraham wants to remember that God is the one who provides. And so in verse 14, Abraham called the name of this place, the Lord will provide as it is said to this day. In the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Interestingly enough, he's naming the place on which our salvation will be one day provided on Calvary. Jesus will be provided for us, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself, 
I have sworn. Says the Lord. You ever heard somebody say, I swear to God? Or I swear on a stack of Bibles. We often do that. I think it's a little, I, I don't know that I'd be doing that. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Be a man of your word. But he says, I don't need someone else to guarantee what I promise. I don't need somebody to sign with me to, to prove I'm going to fulfill this. He says, by myself, I promise. I will uphold my promise. So he says, by myself, I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, when I'm blessing, I will bless you. And when I'm multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of your enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Do you think it's important that you as an individual obey God or not? And I would say it's important not only because it proves that you're saved, but because you don't know your obedience could be affecting future generations, and it does affect the future generation in your home. Because you have obeyed, I will bless your descendants. And it might not mean that because you've obeyed, God's going to do something. But in your obedience, God's going to bless your descendants because they're going to have seen it modeled by you in your household. And faith, by the way, begets faith. Fleshly works beget fleshly works. Galatians says that you reap after what you sow. And so there's, a, there's a blessing attached to obedience. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba. He goes back where they were staying. Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. So all that to say, Abraham wants to remember the place. He names it. His reward is our reward, by the way. God's going to provide himself a sacrifice. And what's interesting is he looks up after having not had to sacrifice his son, and what does he see? He sees a ram caught in a tree. And I believe that even in this, this little detail that we see, cursed is any man who is hung up in a tree. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And Galatians 3.13 says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This ram that's getting ready to be sacrificed is caught up in a tree, and so also will be Jesus. He'll be nailed to a tree on our behalf. And so, verse 20, we have this kind of this quick section afterwards. Abraham uh, is also has a brother, Nahor. And it says, It came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Huz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, maybe that's who that guy from Home Alone was named after, Buzz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel, the son of Nahor, begot Rebekah. All of this is just straight up to go to who ultimately we're going to find out is the bride of Isaac. So just proving this isn't a descendant of Ishmael, but it's a descendant of Abraham's brother Nahor. All this from the same line. And so 
Bethuel begot Rebekah, and these eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. And then it goes on to talk about his concubine, Nahor's concubine, whose name was Rumah, also bore to Teba, Geham, Thahash, and Maacah. So just a little side note about genealogies. So where I want to land today, I don't have in the slides, is in John in chapter 21. Because as I was studying, a, studying this passage this week, and as the Lord was meeting with me, as I was driving, listened to uh, a podcast I listened to, there became a discussion, and I was thinking about this question that God's really testing Abraham on. Do you love me more than anyone else? And there was another person that was asked this question in John chapter one, 21 by the name of Peter. And Peter, if you remember, is one of the most quick to speak and slow to listen guys you've ever met. He was a fisherman. And Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, was told by Peter, hey, no matter what happens when we go into the city, I will go to death with you. I'll be uh, arrested with you. I'm not leaving you. I'm not going to forsake you. And then Jesus looks at him. And we all remember this and says, you're going to deny me three times. And, and so Peter's saying, I love you more than anything, even my own life. And Jesus looks at him lovingly and says, no, you don't. <laughs> it's commendable, but no, you don't. I don't think you understand what's going to happen. You are going to be tested. And he actually says, Satan desires to sift you like wheat. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. But don't worry, Peter, I'm going to pray for you. And so Peter, confounded by this and probably a little disappointed, and Jesus' lack of faith in him is a little disappointed. And yet, what we know is that as he's tested on that night, and he's warmed by the enemy's fires, and a young little lady, a girl, not a, not a big burly man, a little girl, says, I think you're one of his disciples, aren't you? And he's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. The fear of man's powerful, right? And then as he's tested, what we find is he denies Jesus three times, and then the rooster crows. But what's interesting is that after the resurrection, Jesus appears at the Sea of Galilee on the side, and he's going to have a little brekkie with his disciples. And as he gets there to have some brekkie, it's everybody's favorite breakfast, fish. And as they're getting ready to have fish, it says there in John chapter 21, that they notice him on the side, and they're all out in their boat fishing. They went back to what they normally do. And as Peter sees that it's the Lord, he jumps out of the boat and swims to shore. And as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals, and they saw fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you've just caught. And Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to the land full of large fish. What's interesting is John writes down how many fish, because if you're a fisherman, that matters. And it says 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken, which apparently was impressive. They didn't have like the, the kind of fishing line that we fish with. They weren't using trolling line. They were using rope. They'd been wet and dry and wet and dry, and we all know what happens. It breaks, but this didn't break, which I believe was actually a miracle in and of itself. And Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? 
because they knew that it was the Lord. And Jesus then came, he took the bread and he gave it to them and likewise the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Now, what's interesting is it could be, do you love me more than these disciples? And it could also be, man to man, do you love me more than all the fish you just caught? And I'd say it probably is about the fish because Peter's a fisherman and he just caught a ton of fish. And who's not excited about that? He says they were large fish. You know, he's got the fever for fishing. And yet what he says to him is, do you love me more than these? And he's asking him, do you agape me? Do you love me sacrificially? We already know from the previous incident we just talked about, he doesn't. He's not actually willing to die. And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he uses the term for love, phileo. You know I brotherly love you. Like we're bros, man. And um, then the Lord asked him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me sacrificially? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. You know that I fall short. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah. And then he uses the word phileo. Do you phileo me? Do you love me as a brother? He, he's, he's dialed it back a little bit. And Peter was grieved because he said to, it, to him a third time, do you phileo me now? He's, and he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. It's almost like he's saying, you know that I've fallen short of the love that you deserve. You know that I, I don't agape you. I, I already I flunked that test. You were there. You, you looked up at me when the rooster crowed. You know that I fell short. And Jesus said to him, words of grace. He says, feed my sheep anyway. Most assuredly, I say to you that when you were younger, you girded yourself and you walked where you wished. But when you are old, guess what? You're going to agape me. When you're old, when you're mature in faith, you will stretch out your hands and another will tie you up and carry you where you do not wish to go. And this he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. I don't know where you come to a church this morning from, but I believe that every one of us, if we're really honest, we don't love the Lord like he deserves, and we do have things we love more than him. But what I love about this passage in John and in Abraham is that God is preparing us to be more faith-filled. And if you're not faithful, and you know that, and you can, are willing to be honest about that, God's going to meet you in that, and he's going to go, don't worry. I'm going to build your faith so that when I ask you to give up something that's dear to you, or sacrifice in some way that you never thought possible, by then you'll be ready. Because God was building Abraham's faith. God is, was building Peter's faith. Uh, God is preparing you for what he's going to ask you to sacrifice to glorify himself. Don't worry about that. Be obedient and trust him in today's stuff. Because the long run is going to be bigger than we could ask or think. 
and he's going to do a work in your lives that you, at this point, if he told it to you, you would freak out. But that's okay. It's going to be good. And so, Father, thank you for testing our faith. Satan desires to tempt us and break down our faith, and you desire to use even what Satan throws at us to test us and prove what's really there. But it's never for condemnation. It's always for strengthening, just like lifting weights. When we push up the weight and we cannot lift it or it's heavy and we can't do the reps, it's breaking down our muscles and building them up and making them stronger than they were before. And so, Lord Jesus... Without faith, we know that it's impossible to please you. For those who come must first believe that you are, but we also must believe that you're a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. And no doubt, Abraham experienced the testing, but he also gets to experience the reward of the faith that you gave him. And we are partakers of him being simply obedient where he was. And so, Lord Jesus, we are blessed as followers of yours, We're blessed because we get to be recipients of your grace, and we want to see you do a work in our day that we wouldn't believe if you told us, but we know that takes us trusting you wholeheartedly. So in the ways that we don't trust you, remove the dross, burn away the wood, hay, and stubble, and develop in us faith that is precious like gold and silver and precious stones, so that you will be glorified and so that others will recognize your faithfulness, and they'll come to the one Jesus, and that they'll have their sins removed, and they'll confess the Christ as their Messiah, and they'll be saved, no longer fearing death or what life brings, but then instead of perishing, having everlasting life. Lord, build us up, and we'll give you all the glory when you do. In Jesus' name, amen.